listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. This episode covers the life of Christ and the Gospel of Luke. You can enjoy more messages like this with the free Courage Matters app, available in your app store. If you'd like to request Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event, click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 28. Turn with me in our Father's Word. Would you please follow along? Luke chapter 9, verse 28. Now about eight days after these things, he, Jesus, took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Verse 28 says, Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. After what sayings? You know, we left off last time. Verse 27 says, But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. This is the moment that Jesus was speaking about. The sayings that had been going on were rumbling in the crowd. Herod was involved in that. The disciples, the apostles were involved in that. And the question was wrapped up in the identity of Jesus Christ. The hubbub, the buzz that the people were engaged in was a discussion which still rages today. Some people are not sure about who Jesus is because they don't understand what the Scriptures teach, what the Bible teaches. So Herod was perplexed when Jesus comes on the scene and begins to do these exceedingly amazing things. He thought that John the Baptist was the problem, didn't realize that John was just a warm-up act. And the crowds were buzzing about this identity of Jesus, saying that some people think he's John the Baptist come back. Some people think that he's Elijah come back on the scene. Other people think he's one of the prophets. And this is what the crowds were discussing. And then Jesus has that amazing discussion with the 12 apostles. And he says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, in a stroke of brilliance, in a stroke of illumination, says you are the Christ of God. 
These are the words that had been discussed. These are the sayings that had happened about eight days a week earlier. In Matthew's gospel, in this parallel passage, it says after six days. Well, which is it, six or eight? Well, they're both similar in that it's about a week's time. If you factor in the Sabbath, maybe Matthew is not factoring in the Sabbath in that equation. Maybe Luke is factoring that in. But saying about eight days is a way of saying a week's time, about a week's time. You don't strain at gnats and swallow camels here and looking at the difference in the way the authors are presenting the picture when the point is it's about Jesus. The point is that Luke is trying to help us understand something about Jesus that will absolutely revolutionize our lives because up to this point what we have heard is the opinion of men. And this is where people get into problems with Jesus. When they begin to focus on the opinions of men, mere mortals. There are always problems when men get involved. Ladies, that doesn't mean you're off the hook. Speaking generically here, I'm being gender neutral, I guess, when I say men. Or actually, I guess I'm being sexist by using the word men. I should say people if I really want to be gender neutral. What we need here is a verdict. We need somebody to have all the smoke clear, all the fog and the haze dissipate, and we need clarity. We need a moment of clarity. We need clarification as to the identity of Jesus. So far, we've heard from the mere mortals. Now we need to have somebody weigh in whose interpretation, whose opinion really matters, and that's what we get in this passage of Scripture. That's what it's here for. Now, I want you to notice here in verse 28 the significance of what's taking place. This is a great transitional passage of Scripture. Jesus has taken Peter, John, and James into that inner room with Jairus' daughter. And it was those three that Jesus brought in there when Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. He didn't take all of the twelve. He took the inner circle. Peter, John, and James. And here Jesus goes up to a mountainside, and who does he take with him? Again, Peter, John, and James. And what are they doing? Look in verse 28. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to sleep. Takes these three guys with him and goes up on the mountain to sleep. He's saying it doesn't say sleep, it says pray. Well, I beg to differ because in verse 32, now Peter and those who are with him were heavy with sleep. That's what they're doing up there. They're sleeping. They're snoozing. Now, if we were to think of an investment, if you're going to pass the baton on to a couple people who are going to take the legacy and bring it forward, you want people to have certain traits, certain characteristics, and sleep is not one of them. If you're going to be snoozing in the midst of the mission, that disqualifies you. But what we see here is that Peter, John, and James exhibited the characteristics, the traits that God always looks for in a man, woman, boy, or girl when he's going to use them consistently and powerfully to accomplish his purpose. You see, we just came off the holiday season, and many of you have your belts loosened a little bit, your Waste section has expanded sometimes exponentially. And this is the time of the year when we're in the process of eating foods that are quite different than what we were eating in December, certainly after Thanksgiving, certainly on Thanksgiving Day, because we can't fit into our clothes. We're fat. 
Now, you might be encouraged to know that God uses fat people. In fact, I haven't found anybody whom God uses consistently and powerfully. Consistently and powerfully. Consistently and powerfully. Who isn't fat? You have to be faithful. You have to be available. You have to be teachable. If God's going to use you consistently and powerfully, you have to be fat. So being fat is good when it comes to God's kingdom agenda. And this is what we see in Peter, John, and James. We don't see perfection. Many of us are recovering perfectionists, myself included. If you were perfect, as I was, if I was perfect, we would not need a perfect Savior, Jesus. If you wait until you're perfect, you'll never get into the game. You'll never pick up the ball and run it down the field. You'll never allow yourself to get off the bench and get into God's work, God's program. Never be used consistently and powerfully by God if you keep looking at yourself. It's not about you. It's not about what you bring to the table other than your fatness. You must bring all of yourself to God's table, all of your faithfulness, all of your availability, all of your teachability. This is what we see with Peter, James, and John. Yes, they had warts and wrinkles. James and John, known as the sons of uproar, the sons of thunder, the sons of tumult, the life of the party, the death of the party. I don't know which is the more appropriate way to look at it, but when James and John were there, Things happened, and not necessarily the way you wanted them to go. Jesus identified them as the sons of thunder. The people understood them as the th sons of thunder for reason. Their reputation was that they were human. They were loud. They were boisterous. These are the guys who come to Jesus and say, when you come into your kingdom, can we ask you a favor? You want to ask Jesus a favor? You got a left side, you got a right side. How about if could one of us sit on your left side, one of us sit on your right side? In fact, they seem to be mama's boys because their mother is involved in that whole thing. Their mother comes and says, when you come into your kingdom, could you have one of my sons sit on your left, one of my sons sit on your right? And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. They demonstrate an imperfection. They demonstrate an inability to totally grasp things the way that they later on begin to grasp things. Peter, the classic instance, you know, denies Jesus not once, not twice, but three times. And yet he's the guy that God uses on the day of Pentecost to preach a message and 3,000 men come to know Christ as their Messiah, more than happened in the entire three-year ministry of Jesus Christ. Greater things shall you do after I go to the Father. It's Peter in the book of Galatians when we have this titanic headbutting that goes on between the Apostle Paul and Peter, because Peter is given to peer pressure. You know anybody who's more concerned about the opinions of people than the opinion of God? You know anybody like that who struggles with their own identity and gives in and kowtows and dozy -si does around the opinions of other people 
You see, you can't be concerned and consumed with the opinion of God and pleasing Him and being a people pleaser. You can't. A disciple is somebody who has made up their mind that they will please God regardless of the consequences. Dabblers are continually and perpetually concerned about the crowds and the people and the what-ifs that are all related to what will happen if I follow Jesus? What will happen if I say yes to Jesus before I even understand the consequences? Do you know there are a lot of people who are not following Jesus Christ because they want to know where it's going to lead them? Because they're not sure of what will happen to them if they truly surrender to Jesus Christ. But a disciple is someone who follows Jesus for who he is even though they don't know what that's going to look like and what that's going to mean. Case in point, Peter, John, and James. Jesus calls them. They're fishermen. They leave their nets. They leave their co-workers. They leave their family. They leave everything. And at that point, they didn't understand in totality who Jesus was. At this point... They don't understand who Jesus is in totality. The good news is none of us totally, fully has the full picture of who Jesus is. You will one day when you shed this mortal body and you behold him and you see him as he really is. Then you'll have the full understanding of who Jesus is. In the meantime, you're on a journey. I'm on a journey. You're in process. I'm in process. A disciple understands that it's a journey that we begin by acknowledging who Jesus is with the understanding that we have, saying yes to him, regardless of our understanding of where that's going to lead. If you wait to understand where following Jesus will lead for you, you will never truly follow Jesus. In fact, one of the biggest regrets I have in my life was not following Jesus sooner and more passionately. Maybe that's your regret as well. Nobody who's ever truly surrendered to God ever lived to regret it. Peter and James and John show that they're faithful. They show up. They leave their former way of life, and they're following Jesus, even though they don't understand in totality who he is. They understand to a certain degree, and Jesus is being patient with them and teaching them and helping them gain understanding. They're available. They're showing up. They're making themselves available to Jesus and his program plan, his agenda. Remember, you can only build one kingdom, not two. You're either building your kingdom or the kingdom of Jesus in every single area of your life. You don't have a job to do anything but glorify God. And on the way, God gives you money to get food and clothing and a home, maybe, a car. You give Him glory. You're not in a position in ministry to do anything else, anything other than to glorify Jesus Christ. That's why God puts you in that position. See, dabblers get confused. Dabblers are caught in uncertainty, and they go back and forth between being concerned about their own opinion, what people think about them, 
the peer pressure, and you lose sight, you lose track, you have spiritual amnesia, you lose sight of who Jesus is. You lose sight of who you are in relationship to Jesus, and you get swayed, and you get off point, and you go down roads you shouldn't go, and you get rabbit trails that crop up in your life. You've got to settle the idea of who you are as a fat person for Jesus. Faithful, available, teachable. Teachability, one of the cardinal characteristics of a disciple, somebody who's following Jesus Christ. And what we see in John and James and in Peter is that they are teachable men. They're not perfect people. God has no perfect people. You can breathe a sigh of relief because you can give up the pursuit of perfection. And now you can pursue the perfect one. Jesus. Peter, James, and John demonstrate a hunger for God. Do you know anybody who's hungry for God? Somebody who's after the things that interest God, after advancing the kingdom agenda of God, willing to put everything else in their life on the back burner, willing to crucify themselves every day so that every part of their lives Every aspect of their lives is all in with laser precision for the glory of Jesus Christ, that they know what it's about. They know what every area of life is about. It's all to point back to Jesus. A disciple has a hunger for God, a hunger for the things of God. And when you are hungry for God, when you are really hungry for the things of God, there is tremendous potential in what God can do through you. That's what we see in Peter and John and in James. We see that they're hungry for the Messiah. They're hungry for the kingdom of God. And therefore, there's potential in their lives. They show us what a disciple looks like they demonstrate that cardinal characteristic, that key component in the DNA of a disciple, teachability. A real disciple is somebody who will let Jesus teach them. So you are on a journey, whether you realize it or not, going from your known to the unknown. Our world of what we think God looks like, how we think God operates, and we're on a journey learning who God really is in deeper and deeper ways. Learning the things of God, the ways of God. God is always taking us from our limited understanding, our known world to the unknown realm, and the unway, unknown understanding of the way He operates and who He is. Teachability. Now, I don't know of anybody that God uses consistently and powerfully. Consistently and powerfully. Yes, there are one-hit wonders. We see them in the Scriptures. There are folks who are used for God and used by God in powerful ways. God is sovereign. His plan and His purpose will move forward. But I'm talking about consistency, powerfully, I don't know of anybody who is used by God consistently and powerfully who does not demonstrate to God that key component of teachability. And Peter, James, and John had it. 
They were in process, and when God rebuked them, when another person inspired by God, such as in the case of Peter and Paul, rebukes somebody through another person, what happens? They're able to learn from it. Because you know what teachability is? Another word for it, humility. In James chapter 4, verse 6, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, Proverbs chapter 3, verses 34 and 33. If you put them in context, Proverbs 3, 33 and 34 talks about God resists proud mockers. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Teachability is humility. Humility is teachability. If you want to be consistently used by God as a disciple, a crossover from being a dabbler. You've got to be somebody who is teachable, somebody who will learn new things. Yes, God is always in the process of teaching old dogs new tricks. That's what it means to be a disciple. Your ways are not his ways, nor are your thoughts his thoughts. God is in the process of moving and shaping and working in your life so that his kingdom agenda has preeminence over everything else in your life. And what we are seeing Jesus do here is invest in three souls, three lives, who are hungry for him to move, who show great potential as men who will pick up the baton when Jesus is no longer around. And if that's the way Jesus did it, then that's the way you should do it too. We see Jesus investing in the life of Peter. We see Peter having amazing statements come out of his mouth. And we see that although Peter is not necessarily consistent, he remains faithful. He has his low points, but he rises and God reinstates him again and again. Aren't you glad that God is in the business of extending mercy? Mercy is the withholding of the judgment of God that we would otherwise deserve. That's what mercy is. God knows how to extend undeserved favor, grace to you, giving you blessings and good things that you don't deserve. Mercy is God withholding judgment and punishment that we deserve. Grace is God giving blessings and goodness we don't deserve. And together, the grace and mercy of God become the characteristic experience of anybody who's a true disciple. We see that Jesus invests heavily, extensively in the life of Peter and that by the time we get to the book of Acts, he's the guy that is the leader. Peter is standing up among as the leader of the leaders. And then we see James and John, the inner circle, the three here, and then the 12, and then the 72 that we're going to see in a little bit. And by the time we read Paul's epistles, 500. The circles mushrooming out of the influence of Jesus Christ. Jesus knows how to influence people, and he did it one-on-one. He did it in small sections, small groups of people, investing and pouring into their lives. You've got to do that in your family with your children if you have children. Do not neglect your family. And you've got to do it in the family of God where you've got to look for people who are fat. Fat people are great investments for the kingdom of God. Fat people are disciples. They're faithful. They're available They're teachable. They're good investments. They have a good return for the investment that you pour in. That's the way Jesus did it. That's the way you've got to do it. We need to follow the leader. The leader is a disciple maker par excellence, Jesus. 
and we see Jesus pouring into the lives of these three men, we see the beginnings of a transition as he's investing. Jesus is in it for the long haul, and you've got to be too. Who are you investing in as a disciple of Jesus Christ? How are you investing in the lives of other people wisely, carefully, cautiously? Listen, there are plenty of vampires out there. Plenty of vampires. They're all over the place. How much blood satisfies a vampire? You can't give a vampire enough blood. They'll suck you dry every single time. There are people who are not faithful and available and teachable. They are time takers. They will suck out your energy and suck up your time. They will not be good returns for your investment. They're time wasters. I'm not being crude and harsh when I say that. Being realistic. You don't want to invest in a vampire. You'll never be able to give them everything that they'll take from you. You want to be wise and you want to have discretion and you want to have insight to do what Jesus did, looking for people who are faithful, available, teachable. They are good investments for your time and your energy and your resources. Those are the ones that you should be investing in as a disciple maker. If Jesus made disciples, then his disciples must make disciples. If you're not on purpose, and if you're not intentional, if you're not having a laser focus on investing in the lives of a Peter, a James, and a John, you're missing the example of Jesus. You say, I've got nothing to teach people. You're a follower of Jesus? Yes, I am. You know something about the teachings of Jesus? You know something by just listening today, you've got something to give away to somebody. And there's somebody that God has put in your life by the nature of life itself. Living this side of Eden with other people all around you at your workplace, in your neighborhood, here in a larger setting with the family of God. There are people that God has put in your life who are worthy investments of your time and your energy and your resources. They are fat people. They are like Peter, James, and John. They are not perfect people. You won't find them. But you've got to be intentional, and that's what Jesus does here. It's not just Jesus going up on the mountain anymore. It's Jesus taking Peter and John and James with him. Now, did Jesus know that they were going to fall asleep by the time they got to wherever their destination was? Of course he did. Was Jesus frustrated and annoyed with them? I don't know. You'll have to ask Jesus. He probably gets a little bit perturbed at me from time to time, probably more so than he gets perturbed with you. But he's merciful, and he's patient. And he knows that I'm in process, and he knows that you're in process, and he knows whether or not you're hungry, and he knows the potential that you have as you make yourself faithful and available and teachable so that God can replicate through you. Jesus is showing us that the investment in the kingdom of God is not simply by writing a check. It's by pouring out your life with other people. It's about being purposeful and intentional and focused in giving what you have learned from Jesus Christ in your walk, whether it's been for 10 seconds or 10 years or longer. You've got something to pour into the lives of other people, and Jesus is demonstrating it for us right here. 
Peter, James, and John, perfect, beautiful example. Even though they're imperfect, they're in process. You know, in verse 31, it says that Moses and Elijah appeared in glory. Look what it says, verse 31, who appeared in glory. That's where we get the word doxology from. That's where it comes from. The picture here is of Moses and Elijah and Jesus being glorified. The appearance of Jesus, his face changes. His clothes become dazzling white. And what we're seeing is not a metamorphosis of Jesus, but really an unveiling of Jesus before the eyes of the disciples. Peter, James, and John needed to see Jesus the way Jesus really is without his veil, without his covering. That's what's happening. It's not that Jesus is changing. It's that God is in the process of changing three men. God is in the process of giving them an understanding of who he is that they up to that point didn't fully understand. Because remember, the debate and the discussion is, who do men say that I am? What is the buzz that people are engaged in about the identity of Jesus? And the smoke is beginning to clear as the cloud is beginning to descend. And these three men are being transformed by a clear vision of who Jesus is. They're spending time with the Savior. As they're spending time with the Savior, the Savior is transforming them. As you spend time with God in His Word, as you spend time with other people who are hungry for God, who have potential for God, God will do to you what He was doing to Peter, James, and John. He will change you. You will see the glory of God. These men needed to have the veil lifted as the Word became flesh and dwelled among us. Jesus humbled Himself to become fully human, but He had glory before He became a man. This is what they're getting a taste of with of all the people that could be there on this mountain. We don't know where the mountain was, but we know that Moses did something similar. When he went up with the elders of Israel in Exodus, the book of Exodus, he went up on the mountain, Exodus 24. And what happened when Moses went up to the mountain? Something of striking similarity. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God, and he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we return to you, and behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. In other words, let the other people take care of this. You come up to the mountain. I'm going to talk with you. And he said to the elders, let's go back to 14, Wait here for us until we return to you, and behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Verse 15, then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. 
And then in Exodus chapter 34, something similar. After Moses had broken the original tablets, he came down off of the mountain, and the people, imperfect as they were, had just finished engaging in sexual immorality and all types of idol worship with the golden calf. Moses comes down after that mountaintop experience, and in his anger, smashes the stones that God had given him that we just read about. And so in Exodus 34, the Lord said to Moses in verse 1, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Look at the partnership that's here. This is why we don't talk about membership here at Grace Fellowship. This is why we don't talk about membership, because when we see in the Scriptures, what we see continually in the Scriptures is God moving and faithful men, faithful women, joining and partnering with God in His work. This time, God says, you know what? You cut out some tablets, and you bring the tablets. And that's what God's saying to you. Not with tablets, but with all the resources that God has given you with your very life. You see a partnership between God and man. God is building his kingdom with fat people. Verse 2. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all of the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. Look at the exclusivity. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. He rose up early in the morning, went up on Mount Sinai, and as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And then the next verse Verse 29 and verse 30, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. And who was meeting on the mountain with Jesus? Moses. The one who gave the law, the one who, through whom the Lord gave the law, Moses, the one who is considered to this day the hero of Israel, the prophet of prophets, the man of God through whom the Old Testament was given, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all given through Moses, the law, the Ten Commandments, all the 500 and some commandments, the do's this and the don't do this, don't do that, all of those things were given through Moses, God's chosen servant, considered to be among the nation of Israel, even to this day, the hero of the Jewish people. And who is Jesus meeting with? It's Moses, the lawgiver. And who else? Elijah, the prophet, the one who is to come before the Messiah. If we were to look at Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, 4, 5, and 6, easy to remember we would see that it's prophesied that God would send his servant Elijah before the day of the Messiah. And it's interesting that both of those men, Moses and Elijah, came to very interesting, unusual ends. Moses is taken up on a mountainside to see the promised land that he was not able to see because he disobeyed God. There's the imperfection. But God buries Moses. A 
the book of Deuteronomy, the last chapter, you will read it for yourself. God himself buried Moses in a place that nobody knows. Probably so that nobody could go there, worship Moses, who even as a great mighty man of God was still just a servant of God. And Elijah, at an interesting end, if you know the scriptures, goes up in a whirlwind while his disciple, as the replicator he was, Elisha, watches, sees him come up. We have the law represented. We have the prophets represented. And there is Jesus in the thick of them. And Peter commits the classic blunder, thinking he's doing the right thing falling back on his own experience, the Feast of Tabernacles, the, the tents where they would put up booths or tents that they would dwell in. He says, you know, this is an awesome thing here. As he's rubbing his eyes, waking up from his deep sleep, sometimes you wonder and you wish that Peter would just stay asleep, you know? Hey, this is a good thing that we're here. Moses and Elijah and this glory, this is amazing. And Jesus, how about if I make three tents? And as the words are in his mouth, and Peter arises from his fog, another fog descends and overshadows them and envelops them. And it says that they're covered, consumed, overcome with fear. Because this is not just a bad day in Portland, Oregon with an overcast sky. This is not mere natural clouds that have descended. This is the glory of Almighty God is now coming to weigh in on the identity of Jesus Christ. The jury's still out in an ultimate sense. We need to hear the testimony of God himself about the identity of Jesus Christ. Do you understand what the scriptures are saying? And Peter, just like you and me, a mere mortal this side of Eden, in somewhat of a fog about Jesus, but in process of God being patient with him, does what he thinks is the right thing. He thinks it's the right thing to do. Hey, let's make three tents. And the voice says, you don't understand what you're doing. What Peter does, what you would do, Peter does what I would do. It happens all the time. He doesn't understand that Moses was given a platform and Elijah was given a platform and so were you. So was I. Every mere mortal is given a platform. It's what you do with that platform that matters. You know, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, look with me. 2 Timothy chapter 1 in verse 5. Excuse me, verse, what do we have here? Is it verse 5? It is... Verse 6, for this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Fan into flame the gift of God. God has given you something that you are responsible to fan into flame. And you know what it is? It's a platform. I was talking to a good friend of mine who lives in the Midwest. He's involved in a church out there. And I was explaining to him, talking to him with fear and trepidation, some of the growth that's been happening here at this church, that we have gone from where we were numerically to a 70% growth in a year's time. That's 
unbelievable. Only God could do that, that we would go from 800 to about 1,300 in the course of a year. That is a God thing. God did it. God is doing it. It is God who's making it happen. And he said an interesting thing to me, my friend. Meaning well, thinking that he was uh, tracking in a biblical way. It's an intelligent man, a godly man. He said, you know, we found out here that these churches, these big churches get so personality driven. And one of these guys falls and the whole church falls apart. So what we've done is we've gone to a more biblical model. As if he wasn't providing an interpretation at the time at that, and saying that we've gone to a more biblical model. We have four guys on our teaching rotation so that it doesn't become personality driven. And we talked a little bit, ended our conversation on great terms, but I got off the phone with him and I began to think and I said, you know, actually all you've done in your quote unquote biblical model is that now you have four personalities, not one. You didn't solve anything. And now you have four times the chance that somebody's going to mess up because you've got four people, four plates that you're now spinning. And now you're going to have the people compare this speaker to the other speaker, just like they did in Paul's day. Some of you follow Apollos, some of you follow Paul, but neither Apollos or Paul died for you. Jesus died for you. You see, as long as you have people involved, you're always going to have people putting other people on a pedestal. I know that people put me on a pedestal. I know that. And they, do, they would do it in a church of 50 with any pastor. That's what happens. Large churches aren't more ungodly because they're large and because they have a personality up in the front. I could show you plenty of churches that are 50 in number because they're very ungodly. In fact, in many instances, that's why they're only 50 in number. I know that God has given me a platform, and I know that the purpose of that platform is to fan into flame the gift of God that God gave me to communicate His Word so that when people look at me on the platform, I then am able to do this and have their eyes continue to look at Jesus, not me on the platform. The platform was given to me so that I can point people to Jesus Christ. The platform was given to you that you might fan into flame the gift of God given to you. It might not have been given to you through the laying on of hands, as in the case of Timothy with the Apostle Paul. But if God has called you to be a disciple, and if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, your God, your Master, your Lord, and you are no longer a dabbler, but a disciple of Jesus Christ, you have gifts to give to God, and it is your responsibility to use the platform that God has given you if you're a Sunday school teacher. Use the platform that God has given you if you're a worship leader. Use the platform that God has given you if you're an elder, or if you're a deacon, or if you're a school teacher, or if you work a temporary job, or if you're a truck driver, or if you're unemployed. Whatever platform God has given you, you must remember that God gave you the platform. People will put you on a pedestal. Now it's up to you what you're going to do with the platform. I'll tell you what you can do with that platform. Here's what you can do with that platform. You can point people to Jesus. Would you please recognize that people will put you on a platform and stop walking around with your head down and your tail between your legs? 
with some type of false sense of humility or some type of ungodly guilt that some other human being put upon you. And would you please fan into flame the gift of God. Use the platform that God has given you so that when people look at you and they put you on the pedestal, you're able to help them. Continue to look to Jesus because I don't care if you're in the public eye, if you've got a large audience or a small audience, you have a podium. God gave you the podium. People will put you on a podium. People will put you on a platform. Get over it. It's happening now. There's always somebody who's impressed with you. There's always, you'll always find somebody who's enamored with you, who thinks you're all of that in a bag of Martin's chips. Barbecue, please. You'll always find somebody like that. Your ambition must be to point people to the Savior. And this is what happens. They begin with three. It's Moses and Elijah and Jesus. It's Peter and John and James, the three with the one. Three and one. And then by the time we're done here, what is the situation? Verse 35 of Luke chapter 9, a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. Moses pointing to Jesus, Elijah pointing to Jesus, the law pointing to Jesus, the prophets pointing to Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Did Moses have a platform? Yes, he did. What did he point to? Jesus. Did Elijah have a platform? Yes, he did. What did he point to? He pointed to Jesus. Do you have a plat platform? Yes, you do. Who are you pointing to? Jesus. You think it's possible that you might be able to point to Jesus a little bit more than maybe you have been? Think it's possible you might be able to help other people point to Jesus a little bit more than they have been? You think it's possible that you can stop apologizing for the gift that God has given you, the platform that God's given you, and be a disciple who uses that platform, uses that podium to cause people's gaze to go beyond you to the only one that they really should be looking at? Just like Peter got a lesson here. Peter, James, and John overcome with fear. Moses disappears, Elijah disappears. Who's left standing when the smoke clears and the glory of God descends? Jesus. He's at the epicenter of the glory of God. Everything, everybody should be pointing to Jesus. And when you are faithful, available, and teachable, when you are humble, and when you show great potential for God, that you are consumed and concerned with Jesus, God will use you. He will give you a platform. He will give you the podium. Take it. Take it. And recognize that mere mortals will put you in places that you don't deserve to be, but you have to understand they didn't put you there. God did. And now it's your responsibility before this Jesus glorified in the Shekinah glory of the cloud that descended. It's your responsibility to do with that platform what a faithful, available, teachable disciple would do with the platform that God gives you. Give God the glory. You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. 
If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. To learn more, visit couragematters.com or download the free Courage Matters app. Interested in requesting Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event? Click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on couragematters.com. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking. Mm -hmm.